Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke on this Sunday morning. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. It's where we'll be today. Luke 19, 28 through 44. And I'll read the sermon with uh, read the text within the sermon this morning. This week I was reading in Daniel, and I was reminded of this profound truth found in Daniel chapter 5, verse 21. That the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that He sets over it whomever He wishes. Whether God chooses a Saul or a David, a Nebuchadnezzar or a Cyrus, a Trump or a Biden, God in His sovereignty has set those in authority according to His good and perfect will. And no matter who leads our country for the next four years, we know that our God is the ruler over them all. He's the ruler over all the rulers of this world. And one day, God will set His King on the throne in Jerusalem to reign over mankind with a perfect righteousness and peace. And that King, of course, is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Sadly, for some, the idea of Jesus as king has little to no significance upon their daily lives. Sure, Jesus as Savior is a, is a relevant truth because his death on the cross paid for the penalty of our sin. And if we put our faith in him, we will be saved from the judgment of sin. But Jesus as a king? What does that even mean? For us Americans, uh, you recall, we rejected the ideas of, of a king when we rebelled against Great uh, Britain. But still, even today, the, for most of us, the most familiar image of a, of a monarch is still British royalty, isn't it? But to us, from here across the pond, British royalty seems to be more of a, a public relation thing. It's, it's more about fancy weddings. That's, that's what you look to them for. And people who follow them, they're more like a fan club of sorts. But the doctrine or the truth of Jesus as a king, or Jesus as the king, calls for a, a response that is quite different. It doesn't call us to be his fan club. It calls us to be his subjects. It calls us to recognize his absolute authority to rule over our lives. And it calls us to serve him. In today's passage, we get a very clear presentation of the doctrine that Jesus is king. And I pray that our study this morning of what's known as the triumphal entry may cause us to live in light of the truth that Jesus is king. Since Luke chapter 9 verse 51, the third gospel has been tracing Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem to die. And for the majority of Jesus' public ministry, he avoided notice. He avoided direct confrontation with the religious leaders, those who were opposed to him. But now in this final week of his life, what's known as his Passion Week, Jesus intentionally makes himself now visible to all Jerusalem, accessible to all the religious leaders. The time has come for the Messianic Son of David to enter the city of David. Not to conquer, but to die for the sins of the world. 
The triumphal entry is significant because in entering Jerusalem the way he did, he confirmed that he was the Messianic King. He was the Messiah. John's Gospel, John chapter 12, verse 16, tells us that his disciples at that point didn't understand completely what it, that entry meant. But after Jesus rose from the dead, the significance of that event became clear to them. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, then, may it confirm for you and me that Jesus is the King, that you and I might respond rightly to him in faith, obedience, and worship. As an outline of this passage this morning, we look at three points, three aspects of Jesus' triumphal entry, which point to the truth that he is the Messianic King. So we'll look at these three points, three points, three aspects of his triumphal entry. The first aspect of his triumphal entry is the preparation of the King. The, prepara the preparation of the King. Verses 28 to 31, let's look at the text. After he had said these things... He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on, which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. On the road between Jericho and Jerusalem stands the Mount of Olives. It was once known, of course, for the many olive trees that were grown on that mountain. It is to the east of Jerusalem. And on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives are these two towns, Bethany and Bethphage. Bethany is the more familiar one. It was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus where they lived. It would, that would be his home base, Jesus' home base during this week of uh, this final week until his arrest. Bethphage is the smaller one, the, the less known. And as Jesus approached these two towns, he sent two of his disciples and gave them specific instructions to prepare for his entry into Jerusalem. First of all, they are to go into the village, presumably Bethphage, because it's opposite them. Bethany usually is the, is, uh, it seems to be first here. And Jesus tells them that as they enter the town, they will find a colt tied there. Matthew and John's parallel account tells us that this is a colt of a donkey. That is the, the young uh, uh, offspring of a donkey. Notice Jesus doesn't command the two disciples to find the colt, but simply that he tells them that they will find the colt. In fact, they will find it right there in front of them when they enter the town. What's more, Jesus tells them something that's unique about this colt that they're just going to find as they enter the town. That this colt is a colt that no one has yet ever sat upon. It's an, basically, it's been unused. It's brand new, you might say. And once they find this colt, they are commanded to bring it to Jesus. Luke is not just providing details, just for the sake of providing details, but he's providing it to show us there's something about Jesus here. The knowledge of the details. And he, furthermore, Jesus tells them, if anyone asks why they're untying the colt, the disciples are told to give an answer that the Lord has need of it. So, these are the instructions he gives these two disciples. Given the instructions, they, they, they go about and carry it about. They carry it on verses 32 and 34. Let's look at that. Luke 19, 32 to 34. 
So those who were sent away and found it just as he so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. So, verse 32 tells us that the, these two, this one was sent, they went away, and they found it, they found the colt, just as he had told them. Just as Jesus had told them. You can imagine the surprise of the disciples as they walk into the town, Bethphage, and they immediately they find a colt tied up just as he had told them. And it's just the... So they untie the colt. And, and just as Jesus told them, the owners are, are around there along with bystanders, and the owners ask them, hey, what are you, what are you doing with the colts? And just as Jesus told them, they gave Jesus' answer. The Lord has need of it. No context given, just kind of just simply, plainly, the Lord has need of it. Do they even know the Lord? Probably they know who Jesus is. They might as well have heard of Jesus. It's near enough to Bethany, so where Lazarus was raised from the dead. So probably everybody kind of knew. But simply the phrase, the Lord has need of it, suffices. And the, apparently the owners of the cult give them permission to take it. See, in the preparation for his entry, Jesus has complete knowledge of every little detail. Everything happens just as he had instructed, just as he had told them. And how do you know all of this? How do you know that across in this town, as just as they enter, there would be a, a donkey, a colt of a donkey tied there, who would be, uh, who would be so new that no one had ever written on it? And if, and if anyone asked, they would just simply say that the Lord has need of it, and then they would do it, they would give it to him. Some say that Jesus had arranged it ahead of time. And that is certainly possible. And it doesn't, uh, doesn't you know, it's not wrong if that, did, if that is what took place. But while that's possible, it is more likely, just from the wording here, that Jesus knew of this, of these details, because of his divine omniscience, his divine foreknowledge. Sometimes we call this his prescience, prescience. And we see this not just here, but we see it also in another story that's told a little bit later in Luke. In Luke 22, verse 8 and following, when preparing for the Passover, the last Passover meal, Jesus also gives similar instructions to his disciples. Go into the city, and you're going to find a man walking by carrying a pitcher of water. Don't talk to him, just follow him and wherever he goes. Then talk to the owner of that house. And then that owner of the house, and you know, he's supposed to say certain things to him, and then he will show you a large room that's been furnished and be ready for the Passover. And that's, that's where we're going to have the Passover. And then sure enough, Luke 22, verse 13. Uh, sorry for the typo there. Um, and they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. See, both these two passages, the one, the triumphal entry, as well as uh, the Luke 22 passage, imply the divine foreknowledge of Jesus. He knows ahead of time what's going to take place. He knows that because these things have been determined by the Father from eternity past. Everything is in the knowledge of God, and Jesus is the Son of God. He knows all things, and He's in complete control of every detail. 
It is evidence that Jesus is the divine messianic king. By the way, we also find encouragement in this little, uh, this little part, segment section from the response of the owners of the, of the, of the cult. Because when the owners of the cult hear that the Lord has need of it, they respond by giving it immediately to the disciples for the Lord to use. They were probably followers of Jesus. Because Jesus is king, his followers gladly give to the Lord to use. When you hear the Lord has need of it, how do you respond? How would you respond? How do we know that the Lord has need of something in our lives? We know it through, through his disciples. When we share with one another our various needs, that's God saying, well, here's a need. What can you do to help? During this pandemic, many of you have responded to the needs of the saints within this church. You've responded by shopping for groceries. You've responded by driving people around. You've helped them with doctors and hospital visits. You've given yourself by just calling them because they're lonely, talking with them, praying with them. As you gave of yourself to meet the needs of others, you were responding to the needs which the Lord made known to you. And I praise God for your giving to the Lord. God is honored and I'm encouraged by your giving. May we all Consider our lives and our possessions as belonging to the Lord so that when he asks, we readily give it. Because that's what's part of being a disciple of Jesus. Right? It's just like the song we sing. All for Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. And we can do so because Jesus is the king who rules with divine omniscience. And when he has need of it, I may not understand it, but I will give it. He knows all things. He is the king. The preparation of the king leads into the presentation of the king. Our second point, or the second aspect of Jesus' triumphal entry, in verses 35 to 40. As Jesus makes his approach to Jerusalem, we see in his triumphal entry three things that show that Jesus is the messianic king. Three witnesses, three identifiers that he is the king. In verse 35, we see the first thing that shows that Jesus is missing, that the king on a, is on a cult. The king on a cult, verse 35. Look at verse 35. They brought it, that is the cult, to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the cult and put Jesus on it. Having brought the cult to Jesus, the disciples put their, their, their outer garments their, their, uh, over the colt to make a saddle of sorts for Jesus. And Jesus then sat on the, on the colt and would ride it into Jerusalem. Here is Jesus the king riding on a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. Into our modern day minds, there's, no, there's kind of no way for a king to ride into a city. You know, we think maybe they're going to ride in on some kind of, uh, you know, a some fancy car, a Rolls Royce or something like that, you know, a, a Bentley, and maybe he's going to ride in on a, at least a chariot with like a dozen horses or something really fancy, you know, but on a colt of a donkey, a beast of burden, 
However, this new cult is significant because it is a fulfillment of prophecy. Both Matthew and John's accounts would quote Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, as being fulfilled in this moment. Zechariah 9.9 written, is a messianic prophecy written over 500 years before Christ. And there it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophecy here predicts that Israel's king would come bringing salvation to them. And it's a reason for them to shout and rejoice. Yet this king would not ride in to wage war on a horse, for instance. But he would ride in to bring peace on a donkey. The sign would be that he would ride humbly into Jerusalem on this foal of a donkey. And that's exactly what Jesus did. It was plain for anyone who knew the prophecy of Zechariah that Jesus is identifying himself as this messianic king that is coming, who is just and endowed with salvation, bringing salvation and peace with God. Secondly, in the presentation of the king, we see a second, uh, a, a second indicator, and that is the garments on the ground. In verse 36, as he was going... It tells us they were spreading their coats on the road. So some of the so the, the, the first few disciples threw their coats on the on the onto the colt. But as Jesus went along, they were spread. The others, the crowds, were spreading their coats, their outer garments, on the road itself, the ground itself. You know, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a fascinating thing. You, your outer garment is pretty precious. It's what you wear. It's as if I just simply took off my coat right now and just kind of just laid it on the ground, you know? So that someone could walk on it. You're like, what are you doing? What's the significance of that? Well, of course, me standing on my coat means nothing. But when they took off their garments and they placed it upon the ground so that Jesus would walk on it, it was a sign that he is the king. It was a recognition that they, were, that they were submitting to him as the king. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, it was the practice, it was, it, we see it as being a practice of one welcoming a sovereign or recognizing a sovereign king. Jehu uh, was, was anointed by uh, one of the prophets to be the next king, to replace Ahab. And his fellow companions, immediately, they right there and then, they take off their coats, they throw it upon the stairs so that he might sit on or walk on them as a, their way of acknowledging him as the anointed new king. And when the crowds just lay their garments on the ground so that Jesus would walk into it as he's heading in from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, they're saying that we acknowledge you as king. We acknowledge you as our, our ruler. Please come in. It's like rolling out the red carpet for them. Their garments on the road, on the ground, testified that Jesus is the Messianic King. Thirdly, there's a third indicator, and that is the praise of the people. Verse 37 to 38. I'll read all the way to the end. Uh, verse 40 here. They told him, oh, excuse me, that's wrong. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. 
shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The whole crowd of the disciples burst into praise. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And of course, the other uh, gospels fill in the rest. That, that's not just the disciples, but it's the, all the crowd starts shouting it. This phrase, of course, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven glory, comes out of Psalm 118, verse 26. We've seen it already several times in the gospel. It's a messianic psalm that cries out to God for salvation, from which we get the phrase, Hosanna. The other gospel writers will emphasize that. But not Luke. Luke emphasizes the blessedness upon the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He wants people to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is the king who comes in the name of the Lord to bring salvation. See, the people were looking to Jesus to come to be their savior and their deliverer. And their cries of praise were a reflection of their hope to be delivered. But unfortunately, many were looking to Jesus only as a political deliverer from Rome. They didn't understand that the Messiah would come, had come to be a deliverer from sin. And even more sadly, several days later, when it became clear to them that Jesus was not the kind of king that they were looking for or that they had hoped for, their cries to crown him became cries to crucify him. But nevertheless, the praise of the people is evidence of their recognition that Jesus is the king. The actions of Jesus riding in on a colt of a donkey, the garments on the ground, the praise of the people pointed to this truth that Jesus is the king who came to bring salvation. And the religious leaders, you can even say to the fourth, the religious leaders understood the significance of all these things. They understood that the people were calling him the Messiah. This was undignified. You know, if, <laughs> if this was on social media today, it'd be banned. It would not be allowed. They wanted Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Tell your disciples to be quiet. You're not the Messiah. But Jesus then re responded, if they or these become silent, the stones will cry out. Even rocks realize the magnitude of the moment as Jesus the King enters into Jerusalem. Reminded in these verses, in this presentation of the king, that there are different varying responses to Jesus. There are those who reject him outright, like the Pharisees, who refuse to believe in him. But there are also those in the crowds who praise Jesus as long as they thought they were getting something from him that they wanted. But when they didn't get what they want, they turned away from him. Let us instead be like a third response, like those disciples who, despite their fears and failures, follow Jesus faithfully because he 
is our sovereign king. In him our, our peace is bound up in. For him we live. To him we belong. There's one final aspect of the triumphal entry that points to Jesus as the king. And that is the prediction of the king in verses 41 through 44. The prediction of the king. Read, let's look at 41 through 44. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This section of the triumphal entry is unique to the Gospel of Luke. It is his own addition to the story of the triumphal entry. His inclusion of these verses reveals to us Jesus' awareness of what was happening in the triumphal entry. Outwardly, there was a resounding chorus of, of joy and expectation. It was, it was basically, it was a welcome party. But in reality, it was a goodbye. And you can see it in Jesus' tears. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city the city, Jerusalem, which represented the nation of Israel. He saw it all and he wept over it. What a juxtaposition of emotion. Jesus weeping as the crowds are crying out in joy. Why is the king weeping over Jerusalem? Because Jesus knows the significance of this moment. He calls it, if you had known in this day. There's something special about this day that he enters into Jerusalem this, on this day of the triumphal entry. It's a moment in time in the history of Israel that is so significant for them. And they seem to be getting it, but they don't. Externally, the city, the nation, they praise and recognize him, but internally, Jerusalem and Israel as a whole will reject him as their messianic king. In his entrance, what is taking place on this day is that the Messiah is coming in and being presented to Israel as her king. It could have been a coronation day. But they refused him. He is offering to them peace. The things which make for peace. It's peace for them, not just individually, but as a nation. His life and ministry, and now particularly his entrance into Jerusalem, is an offer of the promised kingdom. He's coming to them as their king. It's the offer of the kingdom that they were seeking in him who is their king. But in the end, he weeps because he knows they are going to reject him as king. 
But this was all according to God's plan. Jesus' triumphal entry was of great significance because it was also a fulfillment of divine prophecy. We'd already talked about several prophecies from the, the Zechariah 9.9 and Psalm 118. But this, is, this entrance to Jerusalem was, is also the fulfillment of what's known as Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. We read it in Daniel 9.24-27 earlier. Made again once over 500 years before Christ. In, and we can put it up for you. And we see in, in Daniel 9.25 that God tells Daniel in answer to his prayer as he's praying for his people, for his nation, and repenting for their sin. And it says, from the issuing, and God tells Daniel that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, at that moment, Daniel and all of Israel, they're in Babylon. They're in Persia. They're enslaved. Jerusalem is, 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 in, is, in, uh, is in, uh, completely destroyed in rubble. But it tells them for the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So there's going to be a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. That's first of all. But he tells them until that point, until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There will be 60, a total of 69 weeks. So in this, there's, there's hope. There's going to be the promise of a rebuilding of Jerusalem for the Israelites. But there's also the, connected the promise of the coming of the Messiah. The ruler that they were looking for. What this prophecy does in Daniel 9.25 is it gives a specific time frame for the appearance of the Messiah. 69 weeks. Weeks being a biblical phrase for a seven-year period, which comes out to basically 483 Jewish calendar years, or 173,880 days. At least that's what scholars say. And in biblical history, there were actually four decrees to return to Jerusalem to rebuild. The first three focus on the temple, though. But the fourth decree is reported for us in Nehemiah chapter 2, where it is an actual decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, Nehemiah cries because the walls of Jerusalem are, are torn down. And that date of the decree was March 5th, 444 B.C. Scholars like Dr. And scholars like Dr. Harold Honer, uh, who is now with the Lord, have, have calculated that 173,880 days from that decree brings us to March 30th, A.D. 33. That March 30th, A.D. 33 is also known as the 10th of Nisan, five days before the Passover. On that day, March 30th, A.D. 33, was to be the day of the Messiah, the Prince. And that is the exact day that Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Now, if you're interested in learning more about this, you can read it in Dr. Harold Honer's book itself. It's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's a worthy book for all New Testament students. But Daniel's prophecy doesn't even doesn't end just there. It predicts that at the end of 69th, the 69th week, the Messiah would be cut off, meaning his death. Then uh, verse 26, after 62 weeks, the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and he will have nothing. It means he's going to die. He's going to enter, he's going to come, but he's going to die. A prophecy of Jesus' death. But we learn that he would be cut off for a reason. 
Early in chapter 9, verse 24, he would make, and, and he would do so to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Jesus came in his first coming to be a king who would die for the sins of Israel and the world. And that's why Jesus came. And when he entered Jerusalem, he was entering for that purpose. Israel wanted a king who would defeat Rome, not a king who would defeat their sin. So instead of peace, they would have war. And Jesus in his divine omniscience knew what was coming for Israel. He predicted it here in this, in this prophecy. There, and by the way, it matches Daniel's prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem as well in, his, in, in the 70th in this, in the sixth, 70th week prophecy. Their rejection of the king would lead to the destruction at the hands of Rome. It would be a future destruction where their walls would be torn down, every stone would be torn down, and their people and their, would be killed. And this was fulfilled eventually in A.D. 70, when the Roman army led by General Titus came and besieged the city, starved it out, and eventually overcame the city and slaughtered the people and tore down the walls and, stored, and burned the temple and tore, down, tore it down and countless lives were killed and lost. In fact, there's so many people who were killed that this, his soldiers got tired of killing, according to Josephus. And this would take place because Israel failed to recognize her king in the time of her visitation. Israel missed it completely when her king came to offer peace. It was a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And what Israel missed is a warning to all of us today. It's a warning to us, that, to all of us today, to not miss the offer of the king, to not miss that Jesus is the Messiah, the king who comes to offer peace with God through faith in him. His being cut off, his death was the payment for our sins. And our response then ought to be to repent and believe in our king. Have you repented and believed in your king? Have you received the offer of peace with God through faith in his son who died in your place when he entered Jerusalem? Will you not confess him as Lord then, as king then of your life? And as his follower, as his subjects, will you then join with us, all the other beliefs, and obey him and serve him in the way that he ought to be served until he returns? Because Jesus is king. In conclusion, we come back to our present day. It looks like our election is drawing to an end. Whether you rejoice in the results or whether you mourn the results, let us remember that whoever sits in the Oval Office of 1600 Pennsylvania is neither our King, nor our Lord, nor our Savior. He does not rule over the realm of mankind. And though He will rule over us for a brief time, He is there because the Most High God has placed Him there. And therefore, He will serve God's purposes. Let us, not, let us not lose sight of who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and especially who is our King. He is the one who rode humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey. The King of kings entered Jerusalem, 
and wore a crown of thorns and died on the cross to reconcile sinners to God that we might have peace. Brothers and sisters, our peace is in Jesus, not who is president. Number one, let me ask you to close a couple questions then. Response. Number one, how do you respond to the truth that Jesus is king? How do you respond to this truth? Are you like the Pharisees or the fickle crowds or the faithful disciples? Have you received Jesus as Lord and king of your life? That's, that's the first response you should have. And as those who do, we ought to serve him, to live our lives. Can people tell that Jesus is our king? Yes. <laughs> Number two, same question then, is how does your life serve the king? How does your life serve the king? What, what makes you different from the fickle crowds who praise Jesus with their mouths and sung with joyful praise? Huh? You know, all of us can, can sing that Jesus is king. We can all crown him with many crowns as many times as we want. But the fact is, when we leave these doors, well, or when you turn off the screen, the world is going to see Jesus as king in the way you live. Do they know that Jesus is king in the way that you live, in the way that I live, in the way that I speak, in the way that you speak, in whom I trust, in whom you trust? Or do you betray him the rest of the week as you live your life as if you are the king and not Jesus? Think about that this week. And thirdly and finally, where is your joy at this moment? Where is your joy? Elections are always tough for people. We readily bow in. It's, like, it's kind of like Super Bowls, you know. If you have a you room for somebody, somebody's going to be disappointed. And someone's going to be ecstatic. But the truth is, your, your joy should never be bound up in the president or even the Super Bowl. It is bound up as Christians in Christ our King. Because He entered Jerusalem to lay down His life for our sins to make a way of peace between mankind and God. Let your joy be reflected in your trust in Him. Let your joy be reflected in the praises that you offer to Him. Let your joy be reflected in the life that you live for Him. I love how in recent weeks we've been changing our service so that we could respond to God's truths by singing a song, a response song. And so we're going to do that this morning. And let's uh, sing the song, Man of Sorrows, in response to Jesus, our King, who entered Jerusalem to die for our sins.